Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli and today we're going to talk a little bit about temporal bone imaging, um, some of the nuances on both CT and MRI with board certified neuroradiologist Dr. John Benson as well as neurotologist Dr. Matt Carlson. So uh, Dr. Benson, Dr. Carlson, thanks so much for joining today. Oh, thanks for having us, John. Thanks, John. I know some people might be thinking, how can you do a radiology topic just through words, but there's a, a lot of real high yield features surrounding um, a lot of these imaging tests that we frequently order um, that I think will be helpful to cover in podcast format. We'll, we'll start with MRI. That'll be the meat of the discussion, but also touch on some high yield temper bone um, CT imaging uh, findings or characteristics as well. So Dr. Benson, could we just start talking a little bit, just generally speaking, how an MRI scanner works, some of the primary components? Sure. Well, as you can imagine, it is kind of complicated, but I think you can break it down into um, relatively simple answer. So there's there's four main components to every MRI machine. There's the magnet, the gradient coils, the radio frequency coils, and then the computer to put it all together. So for the magnet, we're using superconducting magnets, and which can generate very large magnetic fields. Essentially, what a superconducting magnet is, is a series of coils round around a cylindrical form, and it rests in a bath of liquid helium. So the wires become superconducting at very low temperatures, below 10 Kelvin. And nearly all the magnets are in use clinically are either 1.5 Tesla or 3.0 Tesla. So a, a Tesla is just a, a marker of how strong the magnetic field is. But to give you a sense, a 1.5 Tesla or 1.5 T scanner has 30,000 times the strength of the Earth magnetic field. And then the gradient coils are the next part. Um, these are primarily used to allow us to look at the spatial encoding of an MRI signal. So when you think about it, producing an image from an MRI signal means you have to choose a specific slice within that patient's body to be examined. And then within that slice, you have to determine the voxels to be des designated. And a voxel is just a three-dimensional three -dimensional pixel. So an MRI has three sets of magnetic field gradients. We call them X, Y, and Z. And on a standard MRI, a magnetic field gradient along the Z axis is the slice selection gradient. So that's what we're using with this gradient coil to try to figure out spatially where you are in the body. And then next is the radio frequency coil, and people call these the transmit-receive coil. These are used to send a radio frequency pulse in and then receive that signal back from the patient's body. It's almost like an antenna. So if you put it all together, essentially, you can kind of picture how this works. So if you put a patient into the MRI scanner, Every human body, as we all know, is made a lot of water. So every water molecule is going to contain hydrogen protons, and each of those is going to act as a tiny magnet bar. So the superconducting primary magnet will align those along the z-axis, which is along the axis of the primary bore of the magnet. But the protons, you should know, don't just stay in one spot. Instead, they wobble like little miniature tops. We call that precess or precessin. So in that motion, together with their magnetization, gives you two types of magnetization. It gives you a longitudinal magnetization, which is along the z-axis, and then what we would call a transverse magnetization, which is along the x-axis. So what you do is, after you put the patient in there, you disrupt that by sending in a radio frequency pulse. And then you're watching two things happen. First, you're watching what's called longitudinal relaxation, which is where those small hydrogen protons are 
brought back into alignment with the main magnetic field. And then when you send in that radio frequency pulse, you're also syncing the precession, so they all wobble together. So the, th the second thing you're watching is transverse relaxation, which is the protons losing their precessional sync. So the four basic steps within the MRI is you place the patient into the main magnetic field, you displace the equilibrium with an, a radio frequency pulse, and then you collect that signal as the magnetization re returns back to that equilibrium, and then you use the computer to put those signals into images that we look at. And would you say, so as it relates to temporal bone neuro, neuroimaging, are most, most of these done on 3T scanners? They are. Um, there's some institutional preference and availability to that answer. But yes, the only asterisk I would give there is we tend to do our cholesteatoma imaging on a 1.5 scanner, 1.5 Tesla scanner. And that's just because it reduces the artifact in that region. And then just touching briefly on the administration of gadolinium, um, practically speaking, if you're doing a, uh, an IAC acquisition with gadolinium, how logistically does that work out in terms of timing um, of administering the contrast and, and how long would that kind of acquisition take? Well, most of our imaging is going to be done uh, without and with IV contrast. So Practically speaking, what that means as a patient is that you'll be brought into the scanner and we'll get a few sequences before we administer contrast. And then midway through the exam, a tech will come in and um, hand inject contrast. That takes about one to two minutes. It's really easy for the patient to go through. Um, some patients say that they can feel kind of a coolness in their arms. Some people say that they can taste something in their mouth when it goes in, but it's, it's uh the chance of getting a true allergic reaction to contrast is very small. And then after that's administered, you'll start gathering more sequences to get the post-contrast imaging. So there's a lot of institutional variability to this. I can tell you that at Mayo Clinic Rochester, our typical IAC protocol would be a whole brain sagittal T1, a whole brain axial T2 flare, an axial space T2, axial space T1, axial space T1 with gadolinium and axial T2 flare space. And all of that put together takes about 24 minutes. What about a, a head coil? What's the difference between a head coil and then a traditional body coil? Um, well, you, before I get into that, you should know that coils kind of fall into two basic categories, which are surface coils and, and volume coils. A surface coil is pretty much what it sounds like. It, it rests on the surface of the object being imaged, and so it's really good for imaging areas that lie superficially, but it has a smaller field of view typically. And then volume coils are large enough to fit larger areas or even the whole body, um, like the head or a limb in. So actually, if you look at the bore of an MRI magnet, if you were to take that apart, the innermost ring of that is a volume coil. People call that a body coil. Um, certain types of imaging also require volume coils, but they're just smaller. So like the head. So some people call this a bird cage coil because of its appearance. Um, a surface coil, we're, we're, those are usually used for more niche areas, kind of like the temporal mandibular joint, sometimes within the spine. But um, uh, for a lot of our head imaging, we are using a head volume coil. And uh, next question, what, what is the definition of an open bore scanner? Well, 
an open bore scanner is just that it it's open. So a, a traditional MRI is a circular tube that you're brought into. It usually measures 60 centimeters. Whereas an open bore scanner has two flat magnets positioned over and under the patient, and there's a large space between them. So it's a lot better with uh, for patients with claustrophobia, but it tends to have much less magnetic strength. I think they sometimes go up to something like 1.2 Tesla. I don't know a ton about them, but they're usually lower strength than that. And as you can imagine, the image quality is typically lower too. So not something that we're using a whole lot um, as far as temporal bone neuroimaging. No, in fact, at uh, Mayo Clinic Rochester, we don't have an open bore scanner. We have some wide bore scanners that go up to 70 centimeters, but no open bore. And we touched briefly on differentiating 1.5 and 3 Tesla um, scanners. Just in terms of overall benefits, trade-offs that you get with each one or the other, would you mind just touching briefly on that? Yeah, I think the ones that would be best to know about is that a 3T scanner is going to have a better signal-to-noise ratio. And that's just because the higher magnetic field is going to increase your ability to bring all those little magnetic dipoles um, into alignment. So a lower uh, signal-to-noise ratio or SNR image is going to look kind of grainy and just worse quality. A 3T scanner is also going to have a better contrast-to-noise ratio, and that's a measure of how distinguishable two structures are from one another. And then finally, it's going to have better spatial resolution. That's a good thing to know about. That's just the number of voxels in a certain field of view. So as you can imagine, the higher spatial resolution you're looking at, the smaller the pathology that you can assess. The main drawback is that you're going to deal with some worse susceptibility artifacts, which is a big issue in the temporal bone. And that's just kind of a blackening of signal around that bone from the magnetic field. Before we transition to talking a little bit more specifically on uh, the different sequences. Dr. Carlson, was there anything about things we had already talked about that you thought clinically might be helpful to add in or things that might have missed? Uh, what what Dr. Benson uh, covered is is uh, super valuable. It's always hard for us to understand from our perspective how this all works, but that that that, that explanation was one of the best I've heard. Uh, just briefly, one just related to this, one thing we'll always mention to our trainees is we'll, we'll, we commonly get a lot of outside scans. People get an MRI for an acoustic neuroma and they get sent referred to us or something. And um, being able to uh, just very quickly interpret the outside scan and make sure you're actually getting what you're what's being labeled and it's a sufficient quality is is helpful. And so um, a post-contrast GAD scan, if it's in phase with what you'd be looking for uh, clinically for like a vestibular schwannoma or something, we always say that the paranasal sinuses and the nasal cavity, so the nasal mucosa should be very, very bright. And that just means your phase of contrast was good uh, for the timing and also that it was, in fact, a gadolinium-administered scan. Could we briefly review some of the physiologic parameters or characteristics that give tissues their T1 um, differentiation that um, just help us to understand when we're looking at a scan, you know, what, how to identify a T1 scan without it being labeled on the sequence that we're looking at? Yeah, sure. Let me just talk first about how we're actually acquiring these images, because I think it's kind of interesting with that background. But you can know that T1 and T2 weighted images are actually acquired really similarly. Um, both of them are doing that exact same thing I just talked about. You're sending in a radio frequency pulse to flip these protons and also to sync their precession. But all you're doing to acquire either a T1 or T2 weighted image is changing up the parameters of your imaging to kind of optimize the maximum differences between the tissues on both of those exams. So T1 weighted images are 
a measurement of how slowly or quickly the protons return to their longitudinal magnetization. If it's a short amount of time, it's going to be bright on T1. T2 is a measurement of how quickly the precession or wobble of those protons gets out of sync. So long on T2 is going to be bright. So T1 sequences are useful in a lot of ways, but one of the best uses of them is just to find an abnormality on a different sequence and then look and see whether or not it's actually T1 bright. Because T1 overall tends to be kind of a specific rather than sensitive sequence because the list of things that are T1 bright is relatively short. So you're looking usually at pronaceous fluid, fat, subacute blood, melanin, slow blood flow, and then gadolinium. Um, and then some pathologies are uniquely T1 bright. So for instance, cholesterol, uh, cholesterol granulomas are bright. Hemorrhagic labyrinthitis is going to be T1 bright. And then one trick that we can use in radiology to distinguish these from other things on the differential, you can use something called fat saturation, which is where you take an MR sequence and you drop out any sort of macroscopic fat in it. So one example would be if you get fat signal that's in the bone related to asymmetric pneumatization of the petrous apex, that can be bright. But then when you do a fat saturated sequence, it should become dark. Or another easy example is uh, internal auditory canal lipoma. That's going to be very bright on T1, but satur saturate out or become dark on a fat-saturated image. And that allows you to tell it from, let's just pretend you have a hemorrhagic um, vestibular schwannoma. Now, that should be heterogeneous, but it shouldn't uh, saturate out on the fat-sat image. And then postoperatively, it's useful, too. So you, you, know, you might get a surgeon like Dr. Carlson here who puts a fat graft into a mastoidectomy cavity. If you use fat saturation, it can help um, differentiate that uh, fat within the graph from something else. Dr. Carlson had brought up interpreting imaging from outside. Um, I, I guess that just gets to, like when we think about typical slice thickness, when you're interpreting a scan, maybe a scan set from elsewhere or something like that, what, what are the typical ranges of slice thickness that would be acceptable for something like a, a IAC acquisition? Um, uh, MRI scan. So most of our uh, T1 space images are about a millimeter, and most of our T2 space are about 0 0.5 millimeters. Uh, that changes all the time as we kind of further optimize these sequences. I always think acceptable is uh, a hard word to really define. Certainly you can see a lot of large pathologies like most vestibular schwannomas without extremely thin slice imaging. Um, but the better you're able to get these isometric vo voxels that we're getting with, with these 3D images, the better you're able to do reformats of them and see tiny pathologies as well. I think related to that, uh, the, you know, the question is very valuable because um, if you get like a stroke protocol MRI and you get thick, thick, thick cuts and you get your first detection of a vestibular schwannoma and then you compare it to a subsequent scan six months later or something, and um, you might say, well, it grew or it shrunk, but really your your baseline scan, if it's thick cut, is very difficult to compare to the other one. And so um, generally speaking, the thinner slices, when you're comparing uh, from one to another, it's valuable to have those thinner slices to be able to detect the differences. There's also just small inherent differences in scanners and also with head tilt and how they're placed in the position, even if they're reoriented. So uh, that's 
kind of why a lot of different pathologies kind of have these um, benchmarks for what we would actually call true growth or detecting true growth. And for example, most people would say two millimeters, you have to exceed two millimeters, uh, meter exceed two millimeters for a vestibular schwannoma for us to call it true growth. So a lot of it has to do with the the scan, uh, the the slice thickness, and some of the some of those different aspects. And just one more quick uh, thing: we had talked previously about saying the paranasal sinuses should be lighting up on T1 post GAD is a good marker. And for in, in the head, the best place to find fat uh, is in the subcuta- subcutaneous tissue. So if you're wondering if it's a fat sat or fat subtracted scan, you can look in the subcutaneous tissue. That's the easiest and probably most reliable way, at least I think about it clinically, to to see if it was uh, the the sequence we're th- we're thinking it is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I'd agree with that too. Let's transition uh, transition to talking about T2 weighted sequences. So um, I guess could we just review some of the the types of tissues that might be T, T2 hyper intense? Sure. So T2 is, is best known for highlighting fluid. So fluid appears distinctly bright on T2 weighted images. So uh, if you pull up a either regular brain T2 scan, or if you pull up a thin slice IAC protocol T2-weighted image, what we call that a T2 cisternography sometimes, the first thing you'll notice is the brightness of the cerebral spinal fluid and fluid in the inner ear. And the brain parenchyma and transversing cranial nerves are kind of highlighted being relatively dark against that bright background. So they allow for great visualization of the size and the appearance of the seventh and eighth cranial nerves and the morphology of the labyrinthine structures. Next, I want to ask you a little bit about some of these heavily T2-weighted sequences, um, depending on the type of scanner, they may be called differently, um, but could you just touch a little bit on how those sequences are obtained and what's um, what's uniquely useful about those? I'm talking about like KISS and Fiesta, those types of things. Sure. Uh, so yeah, you have the different options, like you were saying, which is the KISS from Siemens, which is a 3D GRE, or Fiesta from GE, which is 3D GRE. Um there's quite a bit of institutional preference for this. We here at Mayo Clinic are using Space from Siemens, which is a 3D FSE or fast spin echo sequence. Um, we found that it has less flow artifact and less susceptibility artifact at the skull base. And we're using Space for all of these sequences. So we use 3D Space for T1, 3D Space for T2, um, CD sp- 3D Space for our post GADs, and 3D Space for our axial space flare. Um, one thing I think I should mention is that a 3D technique is going to put out isometric voxels, which is why it's um, so nice to use for this type of imaging. So isometric means that the voxels can be, uh, the voxels obtained measure the same in each direction. So it allows you to kind of play around with the image and reformat them in equal resolution in any direction. I think one re- reason that isometric imaging is so um, important in the temporal bone is that it's such an anatomically complex area, and a lot of these minute structures are really best visualized um, in reformatted images that we're bringing back to the PAC system and are actually doing on our own. What about the flare protocol? So what, what does that um, do for us? Essentially, you should think of flare as being a T2-weighted image in which then you're taking out the signal from the cerebral spinal fluid. So this is our bread and butter for brain imaging because it really makes a lot of intraparenchymal pathology in the brain pop out. Um, in terms of IAC imaging, the biggest application is that it's our most sensitive sequence as a post-gadolinium sequence for detecting alterations in the labyrinthine fluid. 
So, for example, if you have a vestibular schwannoma, it's not uncommon to get abnormal signal in the inner ear that you can't see well on just a regular T2 space sequence. So you mean on flare that come that becomes a little bit more easily um, seen? Absolutely, yeah. So um, particularly in someone with um, a vestibular schwannoma or maybe acute labyrinthitis or something like that, we're usually able to better detect um, alterations in the labyrinthine fluid on flare before we're able to do it on any other sequence. I guess that was one thing I forgot to bring up too, just that the inner ear, um, the bony labyrinth, um, should be T2 hyper intense too normally. Um, speaking. yeah, it's going to be T2 hyper intense, um, except for if there's some sort of pathology going on. So obviously right. if you get acute labyrinthitis, you might get some dimming of the fluid or if you get labyrinthitis ossificans, the signal can actually disappear. And then if you get some sort of mass in there, uh, let's just say a schwannoma that's actually growing in the labyrinthine structures, you're going to have um, the signal disappear on T2, but you might get enhancement in that region. And then if you get something like hemorrhagic labyrinthitis, you might actually get intrinsic T1 hyperintensity in that re region. Um, before, I, I also want to ask you about diffusion-weighted imaging, but one last question related to this, the heavily T2-weighted um, sequences. I, there's some discussion in the neurotology literature about uh, screening um, MRIs for retrochochlear pathology. And uh, for instance, at the institution I'm at, oftentimes we will do a screening MRI um, without gadolinium. And I know it's a, a controversial topic, but um, could you just touch on some pluses and minuses of doing a screening MRI for asymmetrical sensor neural hearing loss with and without GAD, what you think might be missing out on um, if you don't have gadolinium, um, things like that? Sure. Well, um, Anatomically, without gadolinium, you can still see essentially all that you need to see. You don't need gadolinium to look at the seventh and eighth cranial nerves. You don't really need gadolinium to look at the brain parenchyma that much unless there's some clear abnormality within there. And the whatever you're using for a heavily T2-weighted um, sequence should be able to readily look at the labyrinthine structures very easily. Now, gadolinium is important if you want to figure out more. So for instance, if there is some sort of pathology going on, it can help you figure out what that is. Obviously, most tumors enhance. Acute labyrinthitis is going to enhance. Um, think a lot of the masses that we're going to see in the cere cerebellar pontine angle are going to enhance. So it certainly can help you, but you can get away with it um, if you need to, or if the patient has an allergic reaction or something like that to gadolinium and can't get it. Dr. Carlson, I know we've talked at other points about this topic. Is there anything you would want to add to that discussion? With regard to detection uh, of with heavily right. T2-weighted, I mean, uh, I think just what uh, Dr. Benson outlined, that just the pretest probability of having a vestibular schwannoma, which is the main thing you're looking for. There are other things that can cause unilateral, sudden, or asymmetrical uh, sensory or hearing loss, but your pretest probability is between 2 and I'd say 8%, depending on the study, for finding a vestibular schwannoma for the indications of sudden sensorineural hearing loss or asymmetrical hearing loss. And so it's low. And so it's just that you, on a screening test where a lot of people are getting the test, um, is it worthwhile to administer gadolinium on all of them when you can detect a, uh, a small vestibular schwannoma on heavy T2? That's the whole argument. And I think it's pretty reasonable to do. Um, you're going to miss small things like intralabyrinthine schwannomas, which we'll detect every once in a while from an outside scan that was missed, that sort of thing. 
um, but probably at a population level and a screen as for a screening screen protocol, it's a reasonable consideration. Dr. Benson, the next question I want to ask you is about DWI. Um, just could we define what diffusion weighted imaging is? Why this non-echo planar versus a traditional DWI? What, those some of those that terminology. If we could just define it and um, unpack its relevance. Sure. So DWI or diffusion weighted imaging is just based on the motion of water. So it's specific, specifically looking at the random, quote-unquote, Brownian motion of water within a specific voxel of tissue. And at its most basic, we're typically using this in brain imaging to look at whether or not tissue is edematous or swollen, like in the setting of strokes, or tissue that's highly cellular, like in the setting of lymphoma or something. In the, temp- in the terms of IAC imaging, the most common application is the use of DWI for to look for residual or recurrent cholesteatomas. So preoperatively, cholesteatomas are typically straightforward to diagnose on CT. We get some opacification in part of the middle ear, usually in a characteristic region like prussic space, and there is usually associated osseous erosion. But postoperatively, it's a lot harder. What we're dealing usually is uh, looking at some sort of either fluid or soft tissue signal and we can't tell whether or not that's fluid, granulation tissue, or true recurrent or residual cholesteatoma. So what we used to do to try to figure this out was use delayed post-contrast MRI imaging to look at these. And what we figured out was that cholesteatomas demonstrate thin peripheral enhancement, but are otherwise typically non-enhancing. Whereas post-op inflammation is typically more homogeneous enhancing. But now DWI has really uh, taken over as the mainstay for diagnosing these. For clusteotoma, we're using this instead of the delayed post-contrast imaging now and instead of CT. And we've found that clusteotomas restrict diffusion because they're high keratin content, which which is really useful for us. So the echo, the non-echo planar, which is the second thing you asked about, that's specifically important in clusteotoma imaging because it's not really getting used to getting into all the iterations, but over the years there have been a ton of iterations in terms of people optimizing DWI for clusteotoma imaging. And the more traditional, quote-unquote, epi-DWI is what people use for strokes. That's really prone to susceptibility artifacts and geometric distortion at the skull base. So it makes it almost worthless in a lot of cases. Whereas non-echoplanar DWI is much less prone to susceptibility artifact and is capable of thin-slice imaging. So at Mayo Clinic, the last iteration of this type of research that we did was to compare HASTE, which is a non-epi-DWI from Siemens, to what's called RESOLVE, which is... It's a long term, but it's a multi-shot readout segmented epi sequence. And we found that haste was uh, so dramatically better than resolve that we just dropped it from our protocol. When you say something restricts with diffusion, um, what would that look like on a scan? Well, keep in mind, you have to use two things to look at these. You have to use the DWI sequence that comes out of the MRI and also the ADC. So there's some confusion about this, so I'm glad you brought it up. It's important to know that when we get diffusion-weighted imaging, we're actually getting these two sequences. At its most basic, ADEC is a more specific quantitative representation of diffusion than conventional DWI because it eliminates the T2 weighting that's otherwise inherent to a conventional DWI. And the reason that ADC is important is because of something called T2 shine-through. So this is a cause of artifactual high signal on the DWI image. So if you see something that you are thinking is restricted diffusion, it's going to be bright on DWI. 
But the second thing you have to then do is look on the ADC map. And if it's truly restricted diffusion, it should be dark on the ADC map. If it's not dark, if it's bright, then it's something called T2 shine through, and it's just an artifactual form of restricted diffusion. And maybe um, I it's my fault I didn't define this, but just defining ADC for our listeners. If we're looking at the actual scan, it, that the ADC might be read out as like an apparent diffusion coefficient. Is that is that right? Just the acronym there. Is that what that stands for? Yes. We, I, I think we can start transitioning to talk a little bit more about specific pathologies. And since we're on the topic of DWI, um, Dr. Carlson, do you want to weigh in at all on just size um, and timing of obtaining that kind of scan in the post-operative surveillance? Yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting aspects to, to, to bring out here. The first is that, uh, as, as uh, Dr. Ben Sarney alluded to, um, Actually, cholesteatoma is synonymous with epidermoid if you talk about it located in other areas of the, of the skull base or other areas in general. And uh, uh, the, the sequence characteristics are, are very akin to like an arachnoid cyst or CSF. So they're very bright on T2 and hypo-intense on T1 with or without a very small rim of enhancement. And so that diffusion-weighted protocol uh, can separate out uh, an epidermoid from an arachnoid cyst. So that's just a, a valuable piece of information. It also helps you understand why you need it for cholesteatoma. So with cholesteatoma, you common have, commonly have chronic otitis media with cholesteatoma. They go together. And so you'll have an area. So T2 is going to be all over the mastoid and middle ear from prior surgery, scar, fluid, granulation tissue and cholesteatoma. And to be able to distinguish those things on T1 and T2 is very challenging and impossible, often impossible just on CT scan. So your diffusion-weighted imaging, non-echoplanar, is really valuable in that setting. Um, the, the next thing I just want to bring out is that you'll commonly... So um, we have a lot of patients that come to Mayo for surgery and care, and then but they might be from far away. Uh, and so uh, sometimes they'll get some of their scans and some of their follow-up locally, and we'll say we'll specifically request a non-echoplanar DWI, and but and not uncommonly, just a regular DWI will be ordered, and uh, that's just to reinforce that's not sufficient. That's not the scan you need to detect recurrent cholesteatoma, and so you just have to be very explicit in requesting that, and also being diligent on reviewing it to make sure that's actually what you're getting when you're reviewing an outside scan. The next thing is uh, detection. So there's kind of two phases or two ways you can talk about or two scenarios of detecting cholesteatoma. One is primary diagnosis. Primary diagnosis of cholesteatoma is, a, is primarily a clinical diagnosis. You're looking at the tympanic membrane and you're looking for a defect or you're looking for a pearl or you're looking for um, a mass behind the eardrum. But usually for like a primary cholesteatoma, you're looking for a prussic space retraction or something else irregular about the, the TM or middle ear space. So imaging is an adjunct or helpful in that situation, but the, generally the the initial diagnosis is clinical for the for, you know the for primary cholesteatoma that can be different from the rare congenital cholesteatoma which can develop anywhere in the temporal bone um, classically in the anterior superior quadrant but uh, really they can develop anywhere in that situation the TM looks totally normal and you have this pristine drum and a retrotympanic mass that uh, is, that can be a little confusing you say well what is this is it is it a schwannoma encephalocele uh, cholesteatoma middle ear adenoma whatever so just that and aside, um, when we're talking about non-echoplanar DWI, most of the time otologists uh, and uh, in generally in TR, they're primarily, ta primarily talking about detection of recurrence or surveillance following surgery. Historically, uh, most surgeons would do a second look tympanomastoidectomy after primary surgery. 
And the reason for that is we know recidivism. Recidivism is defined as a recurrence of your of the original disease, meaning it wasn't cur- like fully removed and it just regrew, or redevelopment of disease from its original source. So maybe it, you had a re-retraction of your tympanic membrane, even though you cleaned everything out well, uh, it still just grew back from the TM from the negative pressure there. So that's re- recidivism. So postoperatively, it's more difficult to detect that because there's going to be postoperative changes to your tympanic membrane. You're going to have a big cartilage graft in there, which looks white. The eardrum is going to have scar tissue. Um, and maybe uh, you uh, left disease in an area you just can't see through the eardrum, like the sinus tympani or the anterior epitympanum, the common locations for recurrence. And so that's when you're really relying on on uh, MRI DWI sequence. But so getting back to it, historically, a lot of people would do a second look procedure. And most of the time, people would do it at about a year, sometimes a little bit earlier for kids um, with the idea that cholesteatoma might grow a little bit faster in kids. But that year is that sweet spot where um, it you gave it enough time where it could grow to a size that's still detectable when you went back in there so you could find it. But you're not waiting so long that it's big when you get back in there and you're dealing with the same problem you had to begin with. And so depending on the series, recidivism occurs anywhere from 5% to 30% uh, for cholesteatoma. And if you follow, if you have somebody with bad chronic ear disease and you follow long enough, they have a high chance of recurrence. Um, and so that's just conceptually why um, we, we value the MRI. So the MRI can be used in place of a second look procedure in certain scenarios. And people have different thresholds for doing it. Some people still do second looks on everybody. Some people do second looks on nobody and rely on MRI. Or, or some people do it more flexibly, which is what I do. If I had a really bad cholesteatoma and I knew in my heart of hearts that there's a, a decent chance of it recurring because it was just horrible and it was everywhere, then I'll probably go back in and look uh, physically. But if it's a low to intermediate risk, um, then I will commonly rely on MRI uh, with medical planar imaging to detect that recurrence. So just like with the surgery, there's that sweet spot in timing um, for your scan. If you get it too early, you're going to have a false negative, meaning there's actually cholesteatoma there, but it hasn't grown to a, su- a sufficient size for the sensitivity of uh, your DWI sequence. And if you wait too long, it's just going to be really big and you kind of miss that timing where you could have gone in there and had a much easier clean out. And so that timing is a little controversial, um, but um, a lot of people will consider getting a DWI a postoperative, um, what we call a quote MRI second look uh, between one and two years. I'm leaning more towards 18 months to two years. It just, what happens when you get them too early is you get that equivocal scan and you say, well, maybe it is, I'm not sure. Um, And then you end up just waiting anyways and getting a second scan. But generally speaking, the literature will indicate that uh, a uh, recurrence has to be nodular. So it has to be balled up and that nodular diameter has to be a minimum of three or four millimeters to be reliably detected on most sequences now. So, if it's, a, if it's a small cholesteatoma, you're going to miss it if it's under three or four millimeters. And also, if it's a mural, sometimes people call it mural cholesteatoma or carpeted cholesteatoma recurrence, where it's pervasively all along the walls of everything, but it just hasn't become balled up yet, you could miss a, a mural cholesteatoma for a while before it actually comes back. So uh, those are kind of the different ways to think about it. Um, then the question is, if you get a scan of two years, if it's negative, do you get one later? Um, that's, I don't think anybody has a, a great answer for that. Um, just getting back to that CT uh, idea, CT scans are helpful if the diagnosis is uncertain at primary diagnosis. So you look in the ear and you're suspicious for it. There are some secondary features of CT. You can look for scutal erosion or expansile uh, lesion. Um, 
uh, that's eroding or remodeling the bone, things like that. But you can also use it in the post-operative setting. There are some people that have a hard time getting an MRI, whether it be that they have a device in their head that in, uh, causes artifact, or they might have a relative contraindication of pacemaker or something like that, and sometimes it's hard to get a scan. So you can still look for secondary features on CT scan, but usually it's a lot later that you actually detect it because you have to see that that expansile erosion has has grown quite a bit to detect it. And or if you got very luckily lucky, your temporal bone renumatized after chronic ear, which doesn't always happen. But if you have that interface between air and gray, you can detect a growing lesion easier than if it's a growing lesion in water, which you would not detect on CT scan. So weaving in and out of a lot of different principles, but I think all have a lot of value from a clinical perspective. The, the one thing I'd say is that DWI, after all these rounds of optimization, actually is very excellent looking at it. You know, there's there's times we can have false negatives, like uh, Dr. Carlson was just saying, or times you can get even get false positives. But, um, you know, you can detect very tiny lesions now, like he was just saying. And the other thing we can do these days is we can co-register DWI images with either a pre- or post-operative CT or the high-resolution T2-weighted images that we get. So, you know, usually if you look at these DWI images, you're going to see a little bright signal, almost like a flashlight in an otherwise black background. But if you co-register them, it will give you a pretty good anatomic um, look for where these are actually uh, located. Okay, that wraps up most of the questions I had regarding chronic otitis media and uh, cholesteatoma. Um, just want to briefly cover a number of high-yield pathologies um, that are good to know about as an ENT trainee. Um, Dr. Benson, you had already touched on cholesterol um, granulomas being T1 hyperintense. Anything else um, high yield about cl- cholesterol granulomas that you think we should know about? I would certainly say that's the highest yield thing to know about them. You know, these are going to ex- look like expansile cystic lesions, often in the petrous apex, sometimes in the middle ear. And the most characteristic finding they have is this striking intrinsic T1 hyperintense signal. It's likely related to the internal cholesterol components or methemoglobin, but probably the cholesterol itself. And then the key is, like I was talking about before, you can use fat-saturated images on your some of your other sequences. These are going to remain bright on fat-saturated sequences because there's no matri- macroscopic fat in them. They're also going to be bright on T2. They're not going to enhance, although you can see some faint peripheral enhancement sometimes. And they're not going to have restricted diffusion on DWI. And one thing to notice about the T1 hyperintense signal that I did mention is that a lot of these are going to have heterogeneous uh, intrinsic T1 hyperintense signal. Now, that's different than if you get, for instance, a lipoma, which tends to be very homogeneous internal signal from the macro- macroscopic fat in those lesions. Um, sticking with the lipoma theme, any other high-yield aspects? You'd, we had talked a little bit about fat sat, um, just things like that. I do think that fat saturation is the main take-home trick here. If you have a very homogeneous extra-axial T1 hyperintense uh, mass. Sometimes these can look exactly like a vestibular schwannoma, be in a very similar region, but all of that signal is going to very distinctly blacken out on the fat-saturated images. Uh, let's talk epidermoids versus arachnoid cysts now. How do we differentiate those? Well, epidermoids, um, the main uh, trick you can use is to use a DWI sequence. So on face value, these can look a lot like arachnoid cysts. It's going to be an extra axial cyst, often in the cerebellar pontine angle, uh, and that may or may not cause some mild mass effect or even more mass effect on the adjacent parenchyma. But the trick is to look at epi- the DWI. 
because epidermoid cysts restrict diffusion because they result from the inclusion of ectodermal elements during the neural tube closure. So their content is derived from desquamated epithelial cells so that you're going to get very intense bright signal on the DWI and dark signal on your ADC. All right, uh, another one here, Dr. Benson, differentiating meningioma and vestibular schwannoma. Well, you know, when it's deep into the internal auditory canal and small, usually it's pretty easy to figure out that something is a vestibular schwannoma. And I, when I've seen people get into trouble is when they get larger, uh, because these are both going to be extra axial enhancing masses. There's a couple different tricks that you can use. First of all, a meningioma should come with something called a dural tail, which is enhancement that goes along the dura around the periphery of the mass. And I think the other second very uh, useful thing you can do is if you, especially if you have a CT to correspond with that, you can look at the underlying bone because meningiomas, particularly when they're large, are actually going to change the underlying bone. You're going to get kind of hyperostosis in that region. You can also, if they're small enough, use your anatomic landmarks and actually see the relationship to the nerves. But like I said, if they get too large, sometimes it can be a little bit hard. Would you say, um, I guess maybe it goes along with the size, but it, it being centered around the IAC being more likely uh, um, to be a vestibular schwannoma than if the, the, um, there's a little bit, a little bit of eccentricity to the center of the mass for a meningioma? Yes, exactly. If you're looking at a mass that seems to be coming exactly from the bone, particularly along the anterior, posterior margins of the IAC, then probably what you're looking at is a meningioma. Um, wanted to next ask, um, we'll talk a little bit about implants and specifically cochlear implants. Um, before we move on, Dr. Carlson, was there anything else that I, I didn't ask that you think would be helpful to bring up? No, I think it was covered really well. I guess just two things. You can, um, and maybe Dr. Benson can comment on this, but sometimes lipomas can be discovered even on CT scan of the head. Um, they do ha- they're, um, uh, they, they do have a different signal characteristic than intracranial contents generally, or CSF, and so they're able to be detected on that. At least in my experience, I've seen a couple that actually detected that way. And then secondly, um, with regard to meningioma versus vestibular schwannoma, another uh, commonly uh, discussed um, aspect is the fact that the meningiomas will often develop hyperostosis within, at the, at the base of the tumor, uh, and sometimes intrinsically within the tumor. Those are usually uh, areas of reduced enhancement in the center of the tumor, and that's that, that those are the areas that become ossified. So sometimes you can actually see an ossified meningioma on on a CT scan too. Vestibular schwannomas, it's exceedingly rare to have any sort of ossification or anything else like that. The other thing that's um, a little more classic with meningioma is they're typically much more homogeneously enhancing. They typically don't have microcysts or areas of um, central necrosis uncommonly. Uh, they can have that calcification, which I alluded to earlier, but in general, they're much more homogenous versus vestibular schwannomas are almost always uh, heterogeneous to some degree and are more likely to carry uh, microcysts and macrocysts. And they, again, lack uh, hyperostosis at the base or intrinsic calcification. So transitioning to talk a little bit more about implantable uh, hearing devices, I guess just overarching question, what what are the implications of, um, if someone has a, a cochlear implant, let's say, what are the implications in terms of obtaining MR imaging, um, both of the temporal bone, but also, let's say, elsewhere, like the lower extremity or something like that? Sure. Well, first of all, you should know that um, most devices, or essentially all devices, kind of fall into one of three categories. And we, we, in radiology, refer to them as MRI safe, 
which is pretty self-explanatory. It means that the device is non-magnetic, non-conductive. It can be brought into the MRI without any risk to the patient. And then there's MR unsafe, which is equally as self-explanatory. It has some ferromagnetic, ferromagnetic materials that could harm the patient. And then we get a lot of MRI conditional devices. And that means that although the device has some sort of magnetic or radio frequency reactive components, it has been deemed safe for use in the MRI environment as long as certain conditions are met. So you can look a lot of these up on mrisafety.com or magresource.com, which are two websites that are used a lot. But a good example is that some devices might limit you to a 1.5 Tesla magnet with the sequences changed in a certain ways in which we're kind of changing the parameters of the imaging. But to kind of go back into inner ear imaging, you know, the most major things that you're looking at with a, a cochlear implant is, first of all, just the patient experience, and then second of all, the images that we get from it. So with the older cochlear implants, um, the major concern typically, or at least the most common concern, was discomfort during imaging because of movement of the magnet. And so we were doing head wrapping with uh, tight, uh, a tight-fitting elastic bandage. We still are doing those. Um, and I should mention that this head wrapping is technically an off-label thing. The MRI vendors really don't want to be responsible for anything bad happening. So we're actually doing these under informed consent. Uh, the newer cochlear implants are better because the the magnets actually self-align with the main magnetic field, so you can do that without any sort of head wrapping. Dr. Carlson, do you want to touch on, or could you touch on some of the most common complications we see in patients with a cochlear implant in terms of um, complications related to after undergoing an MRI? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just bringing back a couple important concepts Dr. Benson mentioned, we don't like using the word MRI compatible or MRI safe for cochlear implants. People commonly throw those around, but as Dr. Benson said, they're MRI conditional, which means only under very specific situations or circumstances with this particular sequence and having a certain amount of safety oversight, are they considered a reasonable risk to consider having the, uh, the, the scan done? So that's the first thing. Um, uh, Beginning about five years ago, um, there, there was a first company that developed an MRI conditional uh, internal magnet, and then uh, now all three companies have internal MRI conditional magnets. And that just means that the MRI, that the internal magnet of the cochlear implant, the receiver simulator, um, which is used to align the internal and external coils for communication through the skin, um, basically align with the static magnetic field. And that does two things. It reduces torque or tor um, translational movement of the internal device, which reduces discomfort and also reduces risk of the of the device canting or, or flipping or something like that. So as you can uh, as you can imagine the external magnet is very very strong and anything that uh, that has any ferromagnetic component to it can get pulled by it and depending on its orientation it might pull a certain way or repel a certain way just like when you're young and you put two magnets by each other you can either make them push away or come together. Um, so thinking about that, there's there's these theoretical risks that happen with uh, introducing a uh, cochlear implant into the field, um, into an MRI field. And then then there's the more practical or the, the, the risks that are real that we commonly see. So theoretically, um, you could have, um, you could generate heat. Uh, anytime there's a lead or a length of a wire going into an alternating field, like going into a, a MRI scan with an alternating magnetic field, you can generate current in it. That's a higher risk in leads that are wires that are longer. So um, like pacemaker leads have a little bit higher risk of developing heat along that coil or along that um, wire. Cochlear implants, uh, most of the research suggests that they only raise 
temperature of one or two Celsius or something like that, which have no significant clinical consequence. That, at least that's the understanding now. Um, there's also the a theoretical risk of a complete device failure from in, in interfering with the circuitry or something. To my knowledge, that hasn't been reported. Um, there's also the risk. The main risk really is that internal magnet moving or canting or flipping or something like that. And um, if that happens, uh, the internal and the external device don't communicate as well, if, particularly if it's turned on end. Um, and you can, and if it's not detected, if it's not perfectly flat, and the person, the, the patient continues to use their device for a while, they'll actually get a pressure point over the side of that magnet because it's it's not flat anymore. There's a point there, and then over time, it can actually uh, become infe- extrude and become infected. That's kind of the bad outcome you don't want to have um, to detect that. In the in the uh, MRI in the non-MRI conditional, so the the you know the sta- the the older cochlear implants, we'd always head wrap it, and that consisted of a of a firm card, non-ferrous card that was placed over the magnet. The magnet is flat; it looks like a disc battery. Um, and if you place a flat object on the surface of it and you wrap that, it restricts its movement, so it's less likely to pop out of its internal housing. The and that's again all done off-label um, after informed consent, and the. The MRI conditional devices we do not wrap right now. Interestingly, I think most of the pain or a lot of the pain actually comes from the head wrap and not actually the magnet pulling. Um, there have been a couple of studies that have been done that looked at that they evaluate pain and discomfort with MRI scanner, and they'll get the the pain scores at different points. The pain the pain will jump up after the head wraps placed, <laughs> not after they go in the scanner all the time. And um, I always tell the patients when we uh, now we have a specific protocol at our institution where the, um, the MRI technologists are uh, assisting with the head wrap, which is really beneficial in a talk all by itself. But um, when I was wrapping uh, head head of patients, uh, I would always say if it's uncomfortable at all before you go in the scanner, it's only going to get magnified over time because you're going to be in there from anywhere from half an hour to an hour and a half. So tell us now. Um, so those are some, I think, uh, aspects to talk about with regard to complications. The second... Can I ask you actually one quick question related to that before we move on? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Just with when we think when you're counseling a patient, if how how common is it that they'd either have to stop the scan due to pain or that they have some significant complication where like the magnet flips over? Um, yeah. So the the incidence of all these different complications. So it depends on the series you read. It depends on the models that are being used, and it depends on the scanners that are being used. Everything, but um, in if in general. So this brings up a great uh, discussion. Um, so the overall risk of a device-related complication with an MRI scanner is between 1% and about 20%, depending on the, the, this, the paper you read. I think right now most modern series are placing it around at under 10% and probably closer to 5%. That's of any sort of complication like that related to the internal magnet happening. Um, that does not not necessarily include stopping the scan prematurely because of discomfort, but we're more talking about a, uh, a problem with the internal device, or and most specifically the magnet. When the magnet flips, so the internal magnet rotates around, you should, when they come out of the scanner, you should feel it um, to make sure it doesn't feel more proud. You should also take their external processor and try to couple it with the internal device to make sure it's still working, and also to make sure it couples. The magnet should couple if they're still aligned. If your magnet rotates 180 degrees, which is uncommon but does happen, to test that it you all you can flip your the processor magnet completely around also, and if it, then it sticks, then you knew it flipped 180 degrees. Uh, the other thing to mention um, is that if if you feel prominence over the internal magnet, 
and if they're having pain still, it's usually sitting on end. So it's sitting close to on end where it's sticking straight out. At that point, um, you can actually manually reduce it without going back to surgery. If it's on end, you have a 50-50 chance of flipping it back the right direction. More commonly, it's canted a little bit, but not totally flipped. Um, it is a little uncomfortable for the patient. Uh, you inform them it's going to be uncomfortable very temporarily, but they, usually they prefer that to than going back to the MR. Uh, sorry, going back to the OR for a short procedure to reseed it. But if you push pretty firmly on a lot of the devices that have removable magnet systems, you'll feel a click or a pop, and it will go back in place, and it won't be a problem again. Uh, it'll go. It'll reseat. Um, a couple other things that are worthwhile uh, to mention. Uh, the first is. Um, after an MRI scan, you should always counsel the patient about things to look out for. So increasing pain, it should get better after the scan and not worse. They shouldn't get any redness over the device, and, they, and it should still stick very well. If they don't have, if those things don't occur, or if they're having those problems, they should bring it back to your attention. If you're suspicious of a flip, but you can't, they have a thick scalp, or you just can't prove it, you can get these oblique uh, CT scans. And basically, this, the, the, the magnet should be flat and in plane with the coil. So if you get a scan, if you get a you could get a CT scan, I suppose, but an X-ray even is usually sufficient in a couple planes to see if it's out of plane of the of the internal coil. Um, also, the other thing, Matt, I don't know if this would be interesting to talk about, but you do for a variety of reasons sometimes, or at least just imaging reasons sometimes, take out the magnet, right? Then yep. send them an imaging and put it back in. So um, when an when an order is put through for an MRI, the first question is, do they actually need? And they have a and they have a device in their head. The first question is, do they actually need an MRI? Could they get an alternate scan that would be reasonably good? Also, um, and then if they if it's felt that they really need that scan, then you have to then you have a couple different options. The traditional model is where you'd remove the internal magnet, they'd go get the scan, and then you'd put it back in. Um, as you might imagine uh, that introduces a small risk of infection. It introduces two procedures, uh, which co- provides some cost to the patient. There's also a period of non-use afterwards. After you stitch uh, the, the flap closed, after you put the magnet back in, usually most people don't want them to use their device for a short period of time. There's also a little bit of scalp swelling, so your magnet doesn't stick as well initially. Um, so most people prefer just going in with the scan. There are some people that have severe claustrophobia or, or severe discomfort with the device or a combination of both. So when somebody stops a scan, it's always it's sometimes unclear to me if it was the discomfort, if it was claustrophobia, if it was anxiety over the fear of the device moving, or if it you know if it's a combination of all these things. Um, so there are some situations where you'll actually just sedate the patient and you put them under general anesthesia for a short MRI scan um, to overcome that issue of some discomfort, some anxiety, some claustrophobia. So that's a third option. Some people don't like that idea because they say that the pain is warning you about an impending complication of the device rotating, and if they're an, under anesthesia, they wouldn't catch that. I don't. I, I can understand that, but um, I think that it's a very reasonable option too. You just have to test it afterwards to make sure it, it didn't move or something like that. Um, the other thing about um, removing the ma- so there's the patient tolerance, there's the device-related potential complications. Um, and then the, the third thing that's really important is magnetic artifact or the artifact that's induced by another magnet inside the person's head from the MRI scanner. Um, and I think there's a lot of different devices that need to be talked about. Uh, uh, but for brevity, we'll just we'll talk about MRI conditional um, CI, MRI non-conditional or, uncon- um, or MRI unsafe CIs that are done or off-label, the older versions. And then the new bone conduction implants, uh, uh, the percutaneous or sorry, the 
transcutaneous uh, devices now like the Ossia and the Bone Bridge. So um, there's a number of studies now that have looked at CI in the ipsilateral, looking at the ipsilateral temporal bone imaging in a person who has a CI with or without magnet removal. There's no question that removing the magnet reduces artifact, but doesn't completely eliminate it. It's also interesting that the artifact around the implant is not perfectly spherical, meaning um, you could, uh, it's not spherical on all the different reformat or all the different uh, sequences. If you're looking at an axial, sagittal, or planar views, and it's also not even on all the different sequences. So you might get a good glimpse of it on an axial, but you wouldn't be able to see it as well on a coronal, for example. The other thing is sometimes certain sequences are more susceptible to artifact than other ones. So if you're just trying to see if something grew or changed um, and you're looking for kind of bigger changes, you can still usually do that for an ipsilateral tumor, uh, ipsilateral vestibular schwannoma, and a person has a CI with or without magnet removal. Even on the older devices, like the very old devices, the clarion devices and things like that, they still usually, usually can see the ipsilateral um, ear. There are rare circumstances that people will ask you to remove the internal magnet for special imaging that requires greater sensitivity or a higher Tesla scan. And one example of that is that will sometimes be asked about a seizure protocol MRIs where a higher Tesla scan is required, or they're trying to do something more fancy with the scanner. And just that artifact is is uh, pretty, pretty problematic. So the last um, uh, thing to talk about. So we talked about CI. The last one I just want to briefly touch on is bone conduction implants, and specifically the um, the ASEAN bone bridge. They become more popular because they circumvent or mitigate that risk of um, post reaction. You know, five to fifteen percent of people get um, uh, a reaction to the post and try to overgrow it and get crusting and secondary infection from a traditional percutaneous Baja. The uh, devices that use a magnet. Uh, circumvent that by using a magnet instead of having a post that going through the skin. But that internal device has a, a very significant susceptibility, uh, sorry, uh, creates a significant artifact from scanners. We actually, it's not published yet, but we just we just completed a study. Our uh, just previous fellow, Dr. Ashton Ishtiri, did a great cadaveric study that looked at Ossian Bone Ridge uh, with several different scanners. We had our best MRI radiologists in, our, in several people, uh, several uh, industry representatives from the different companies in the room, and we tried to make the best sequences for all these different devices to reduce metal artifact and reduce uh, imaging artifact. And, and, and the punchline is essentially um, with DWI protocol, non-equiplanar DWI protocol, which is what you're going to use for cholesteatoma in a lot of these patients when you have an ipsilateral conductive hearing loss, you close their ear or whatever, um, it's almost unimageable, even without the magnet removal. So the uh, the ASEA is not technically MRI conditional. It uses a 500 series uh, uh, magnet similar to the 500 series in, in the cochlear implant um, world. But even if you remove that magnet, the artifact on DWI is nearly prohibitive on the ipsilateral ear. Uh, the bone bridge has even a greater uh, artifact. Uh, the bone bridge is uh, MRI conditional for 1.5 uh, Tesla. Uh, but the artifact is quite significant, so much so that you can you can barely resolve the contralateral pinna. There's so much there's so much artifact with that particular device, and so it presents a clinical conundrum or a, a dilemma because a lot of times we people with really bad ears, chronic ears, are chronically draining, bad conductive hearing loss. You're not going to improve with their eighth surgery. Sometimes we'll close those ears and we'll put a bone conduction device on there, but you still need to survey them probably for cholesteatoma at some point. And your ability to do so with the MRI is, is significantly diminished. So I think there's going to be some technological advancements over the years from companies uh, to help with that, both on the on the MRI side and also on the implantable device side. But I, I just want to mention that because these devices are new and they're wonderful. They're super helpful for a lot of clinical scenarios. But And so we're putting them in a lot of people and a lot of people with chronic ear disease 
and we we didn't we didn't really think fully about uh, what we're going to do with MRI, and I think it's going to be at least a little bit of a problem until we get this figured out from a technological standpoint. Related to that, any issues you've seen over the years with um, middle ear prostheses? Um, great question. So the passive, so there's um, middle ear implants come in two varieties: the active form, which are you know like the Envoy Esteem, uh, things like that. That's that's a whole separate topic. The passive OCRs or stapes prostheses, things like that. Um, the punchline is that, at least in the, within the United States, everything that's been produced and anybody that would be still alive is believed to be, um, and is believed to not contain sufficient ferromagnetic material to cause a problem. And so, we, if a person shows up, just practically speaking, if a per- person shows up with an OCR or prosthesis, we will generally scan them, even if we don't necessarily know. Uh, the prosthesis because the risk is perceived to be extremely low. In the literature and in discussion, there's always this discussion about the one batch of the McGee prosthesis from 1987 that um, uh, that potentially contained a, a, a bit of ferromagnetic material. It was done wrong, and there's a risk from that batch. Um, a lot of things to think about. Uh, first of all, anybody who is implanted, some people with a lot of people who are implanted from that very limited batch probably aren't still alive. The limited batch was very small, and actually, the number of reported events is I, I have to believe it's very close to zero. So, um, there the general practice right now is if somebody comes in for an MRI and a stapes process, it has a stapes prosthesis, we usually ask them to make sure it wasn't that year. But practically speaking, the risk is just so low, it's probably lower than having a serious adverse event from the contrast administration, which is also very, very low. So there's another scenario where a person might have a device in their head, a a, um, bone conduction implant, or they might have a cochlear implant, but they're getting a scan somewhere else on their body uh, with an MRI. There's some interesting aspects about uh, that scenario that are still worth considering. First of all, um, regardless of where you sc- where, regardless of where you're scanning them, you're gonna, still going to introduce translational forces as soon as they're in the MRI scanner. So even though you're scanning their toe, and they have a device in their head, they're still going to feel some of that impact in their head. There is also some. Um, it's interesting to me that the um, the center of the bore is kind of like the eye of the hurricane. It has the least translation. It has the least translational pull, or the gradient is the shallowest and not the steepest in the center. And so actually, when you're getting your head scanned, you might actually have less torque on your uh, internal magnet than you might have if you're getting another area scanned. So it doesn't. So just to say, if you're getting your toe scanned, it doesn't reduce your risk of having your magnet flip. In fact, maybe it might int- it might potentially actually increase a little bit. Um, a couple of things. First of all, that is why the techs are so careful about asking about all types of devices, um, just to make sure they're not going to introduce anything into the MRI suite that could be dangerous. But you know, on our end, the the nightmare situation is you know we have a patient that's uptunded or something like that, or they did miss something there, during their screening, and we get a call from the techs saying, "Oh, we're look at this, we're having some ferromagnetic activity that we're seeing on these sequences." And often people's gut reaction that you have to move against because of that torque is to run in there, get the patient off the scanner as fast as you can, and get them safely out of the room. But in reality, because the torque is, like you said, actually the highest kind of at the mouth of the scanner. What you have to do is bring them out very slowly and then try to position them onto a different bed and then bring them out of the room instead of having them just come off the scanner and then sit up. That's essentially the worst thing you could do. That's super valuable. Um, 
related to that, the, the one other thing probably worth mentioning is usually artifact is not a, an issue at that point. If you're getting a, a scan below the shoulders, at least with a CI, you're usually not introducing substantial artifact, at least at 1.5 and 3 Tesla is my understanding. Uh, although it, it is, we don't know exactly the, the, the um, with the bone conduction implant, how much artifact you're going to get and what, and what sort of proximity to it, just because it does appear to have a little bit more interaction with the, with the magnetic scanner. All right, Dr. Benson, I wanted to touch a little bit on obtaining temporal bone CT um, images. We won't spend as much time here as we did on MRI, but um, just some basics. So things like acquisition time, um, the expected or typical slice thicknesses, things like that. Um, would you mind giving an overview of temporal bone CT for us? Sure. Well, the, the acquisition time is really easy. We're talking about on the order of seconds. I mean, so much that I really don't even know exactly how long you're going to be in the scanner for, but that's a huge advantage over CT. You're going to get very high resolution images, in fact, even higher resolution images than you get on MRI, and you get them at, um, uh, very quickly. In terms of the, the slice thickness that we're getting, our, our best temporal bone imaging that isn't done on the photon counter CT is putting out 0.4 millimeter slices, um, which is allowing us to see very small anatomic details. But it's funny, you know, uh, before we were started with the photon counting CT, and I can talk about that too in a second, I would have said that's essentially acceptable for all temporal bone imaging. But we're finding more and more, actually, that the thinner slice imaging is excellent for figuring stuff out. So I've seen just this year alone multiple cases in which superior semicircular canal dehiscence was called as either being present, absent, or indeterminate, and all of a sudden we get more high-quality imaging on the photon counting CT that's quite clearly showing what is actually present. Yeah, the, the photon counting scanner is, it. I mean, it just seems at least from a from an otologist perspective, such a breakthrough technology. It, it has, I know you'll uh, be able to uh, talk about it in much greater depth than I can, but my understanding is it has a significant reduction in, in uh, radiation exposure. Not that uh, Conventional scanners provide much radiation, but it's about fifty or sixty percent, and that in your in your spatial resolution is substantially better. You can get down to 0.1 millimeters, and I've, like you said, I've seen examples of superior canal dehiscence or displaced prosthesis, uh, and a couple other in congenital um, conductive hearing loss uh, with acicular ab uh, abnormalities that were not necessarily detected even on our great um, 192 force scanner, conventional scanner. Uh, that were detected on the photon counting scanner. Right? Um, so I'd be, I don't know if you could just give a very brief intro to that. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know that the photon counting CT is a newly emerging technology that we're just kind of playing around with now. Basically, conventional CT uses what's called energy integrating detectors, and they convert x-rays into visible light, and then they convert that visible light into electric signal. But these require the use of SEPTA between the detector elements. It's kind of like a grid and that's what really gets you into problems with limiting your spatial resolution. Whereas photon counting CT directly transforms photons into electric signal and then records each individual photon. So these don't require SEPTA. And so we get really dose-efficient, high spatial resolution imaging. So in the paper that we just put out, we were getting 0.2 millimeter slices. And uh, in that paper, we we're getting a 31% decrease in radi radiation dose. And I'll tell you the most... Um, amazing details we're getting is when we're bringing these into our PAC system and actually reformatting the images. You can certainly tell the difference just on the axial uh, sequences alone, but when you're actually reformatting these in multiple planes, then it becomes really obvious 
just how terrific the anatomic detail is on the photon counting CT. Dr. Benson, what about obtaining temporobone CTs with contrast? When might that be appropriate? Really rarely. You know, the vast majority of temporal bone imaging can be done without contrast. If there's something that would clinically suggest that there's like retroauricular soft tissue swelling or maybe a mastoiditis with associated soft tissue problems, maybe if you're worried about a drainable abscess or maybe a dural venous uh, sinus thrombosis, then those would be times to consider it. But I I would say the vast majority of clinical information that you want from a temporal bone CT can be done without contrast. Dr. Carlson, related to that, let's say you have um, someone coming in for acute mastoiditis, or that's the clinical concern. Would you recommend all those folks get uh, CT with contrast, or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, we commonly, it is, it might be benefit. so <laughs> it's a tough question. It's kind of based on your clinical presentation. Um, the advantages of the contrast is it might help delineate uh, subperiosteal abscess or phlegmon a little bit better. Um, it potentially might have some advantages uh, with regard to um, finding uh, a, sig- a partial sigmoid sinus thrombosis or something like that, or you know, early intracranial events. Um, if a person's coming in and they have any mental status changes, I default to a CT scan, temporal bone, with and without contrast, and also CTAV, because I want to look at the dural venous sinus system in addition to it. Um, but I think you, I think it would not be crazy to start with a temporal bone CT without contrast, just to see if you have coalescent mastoiditis, and you can still you can still identify a lot of these findings. Like for example, dural venous sinus thrombosis often has a, a modeled sigmoid plate, not always, but often does. There's 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 ways you can still get at it, but it's not as good as without. It, you know, it'd be better to have contrast, and even better to have CTAV. Dr. Benson, let's uh, first touching on otosclerosis. So um, just high yield features, what are you looking for when we send um, a patient for a temporal bone CT when we're thinking potentially otosclerosis? Uh, So keep in mind, there's two types. There's fenestral and then retrofenestral. Fenestral is more common, and that's when we typically see areas of demineralization or formation of spongy bone in the area of the fistula antifenestrum, which is just anterior to the oval window. So if I get an exam asking for otosclerosis, that's my first thing is just to scroll right to that anatomic location and look for that finding. In retrofenestral, you can get focal or circumferential demineralization, and it surrounds the cochlea. So in radiology, we call this the double ring sign. But you always have to keep in mind that what we're seeing does depend on the stage of the disease, that in the otospongiotic phase, you get demineralization, which shows up as decreased attenuation of the bone. And in the otosclerotic phase, the abnormality will increase in attenuation. It can be sometimes a little bit harder to tell from normal bone. The other trick that I would point out is you can reformat these along the long axis of the stapes. And there's a lot of ways um, in radiology to reformat images along the uh, ossicular chain. But along the long axis of the stapes in particular can uh, allow us to better see the fixation of the stapes footplate related to otosclerosis. That comment you made about the decreased attenuation, I just wanted to circle back on that because I think it's maybe one of the most counterintuitive parts as a trainee trying to learn this. So when you say that, that actually means uh, decreased density or like a hyperlucency. Even though we call it otosclerosis, it's it's a decrease in the um, that bony density. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and just to clarify, you know, when when we talk about MRI, we talk about intensity. 
And when we talk about CT, we talk about density or attenuation. But you're right. It, it is a little bit um, odd to think about, but that is the most characteristic finding is, even though the name is sclerosis, what we're actually seeing is a little area of uh, decreased attenuation. It almost looks like demineralized or, I mean, if you want to use this term, it almost looks like osteoporotic bone in a little area. Uh, just a couple things uh, that are interesting to, to add. Um, uh, the first is all these diagnoses are uh, brought into clinical context. You'll use your audiogram and also your stapes reflexes, and you'll uh, some of the masquerading diseases you're going to be looking for, anything that causes a conductive hearing loss, but in general, if a person has a nice, clean, intact drum in a conductive hearing loss, the primary mimicker you're looking for is superior canal dehiscence, where the air bone gap is largely related to um, uh, elevated bone lines or... Um, uh, uh, being able to, having your bone lines be superconducting rather than actually uh, depressing your uh, air bone gap or your air conduction line. Uh, the other thing, there's a couple of extra features that you might be able to see with otosclerosis. Uh, sometimes you get uh, signs of more advanced disease. You can get round window obliteration. Uh, you can also get some ossification, particularly in the basal turn, but any, anywhere in the cochlea. And you can actually get what's called a smudge sign where your cochlear lumen is not as well demarcated. The last thing, which is an indirect sign, which is pretty interesting, and I just I wouldn't know this if I didn't work with uh, Dr. Benson and Dr. Lane uh, and talk with them so much, but uh, there's a, a increased risk of having um, IAC diverticulum. So these small diverticulum off the off the uh, region of the fundus, you'll commonly see those in people with otosclerosis. They can also they can also occur sp uh, sporadically, but they're more commonly associated with cavitary otosclerosis. So some other other interesting uh, features. Dr. Benson, could you talk a little bit about imaging planes, workup of uh, superior semicircular canal dehiscence? Sure. You know, we, we often use two other planes for reformatting those, which are the Stinver view and the partial view. But the reason that we use them is that the other classic reformats, which are the axial, sagittal, and coronal reformats, are just usually out of plane. So it's a little bit hard to tell if there's true semicircular canal dehiscence. So we get oblique reconstructions, both perpendicular and parallel to the plane of the superior semicircular canal. And it just allows you to see a little bit better whether, whether or not there's true dehiscence. But it can be tough. You can get ridges of bone that are very thinned, and you certainly can get disagreement between radiologists of whether or not true dehiscence is present. I think it's uh, related to that. It's worth mentioning that on a true coronal, we get these on outside scans, not infrequently. A true coronal, if it's not, particularly if it's not a very fine cut, it overcalls dehiscence very commonly on the lateral apex area. Um, it's very commonly, it looks like when you get a dedicated scan and it's, uh, it's certainly covered by bone. Just related to that, how, how common is it? Um, I, I mean, maybe there's then a factor of just not a great imaging sequence used, but how, how common is it in the general population to just incidentally find superior semicircular canal dehiscence? The last time I looked this up, I saw that it was present in something like 2% of asymptomatic patients and something like 14% of symptomatic patients. Some of the older studies that are out there seem to indicate that it was larger, but I'm guessing because that's because they had worse quality imaging. The 2% the more closely aligns with what seems to be suggested, at least that I've seen in post-mortem studies, which is more like 0.5%. Yeah, I would say that's very, very true. You know, there's different diseases that you can have. And some of these, you know, 
superior canal dehiscence will not change the number of years you live. It's going to change your potentially change your quality of life during those years. So if you're asymptomatic, there's no indication to treat a superior canal dehiscence. And there's other diseases that are like, or other conditions that are like that too. That's this, that's separating superior canal dehiscence, the anatomical finding from superior canal dehiscence syndrome, which a, which is a manifestation of a third third window phenomenon, which has a constellation of symptoms we can talk about. But um, you need to separate those. Some people think so. We don't know why they developed. It could be underdevelopment uh, over time. It doesn't get mineralized as well. So like if you get a scan, perinatal scan, almost everybody has dehiscences of the posterior canal and superior canal. Uh, and so they're super common in the very, very young person. But then over time, uh, you get more, um, the, the otocapsule forms more. Um, so maybe they don't develop well. Some people think it's some sort of um, metabolic disorder with bony resorption, or is it related to age changes? Or is it related to elevated intracranial pressure where you're constantly eroding your skull base, just like a lot of these patients also have uh, all these areas of microdehiscence or uh, dehiscent geniculate ganglion. It's probably, like most things, it's probably a constellation of the different things or a, a combination of many different things, and then each person might contribute uh, to, dif- to different degrees. Um, bilateral dehiscence, uh, people who have unilateral uh, a dehiscence on one side are more li- much more likely to have a dehiscence on the other side, which kind of suggests more of a systemic uh, process like we kind of talked about. But just to underscore, if they don't have symptoms from it that are attributable to it, then there's, at least in most people's opinions, there's no indication to recommend any sort of treatment. There's an interesting phenomenon that like, so people are probably predisposed to developing the syndrome if they, so if they have a, if it's thin over top or truly dehiscent on a scan and you're not manifesting symptoms, you're clearly more likely to develop the syndrome that somebody who has it covered. But how, so what is it? So some people think there's a second hit. So there's probably some like, and this is just all, at least right now, speculative, but there's probably some very, very thin um, layer of firm enough periosteum where you're not manifesting third window. And at least a number of people will report an episode of a spike in intracranial pressure, um, whether it, in, commonly from trauma. So they get hit um, or they valsalva really hard or they were in a car accident or something else. And they'll say immediately after that accident, I could hear my eyeballs move. I could hear my own voice. I could hear my breathing. I could hear my footsteps louder than they should be in the ipsilateral ear. I had pulsatile tinnitus. My voice is too loud all these sorts of things right after a trauma event. And um, some people postulate that it's breaking that really thin uh, membrane uh, that was protecting you from having the symptoms, either by elevated intracranial pressure during the event, so pushing down, or uh, potentially by elevated um, inner ear pressure or something like that. But um, there's some idea that maybe it takes a second hit for some people to actually manifest the symptoms. All very speculative and uh, unknown for sure right now, but it's an interesting area that's evolving. Okay, another pathology that I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Benson, I, I guess we could have talked about it in the MRI as well, but um, yeah, either way, our encephalocils, um, just in terms of high-yield things, both both on CT but also maybe on MRI, things to watch out for, what you're looking for. Sure. Well, you know, keep in mind, an encephalocele is specifically where both brain and meninges herniate out a defect in the cranium. and I, So we could call it a meningoencephalocele, and some people do. But it's different than just a meningocele where only meninges are protruding out. And I, I see people mistakenly kind of lumping those together, but that would be false. Um, you should know that, you know, they can be congenital. They can be secondary to elevated intracranial pressure. They can be from prior surgery or trauma. And uh, people are interested in them for a lot of reasons, but one of the main ones is, uh, you know, they can they can cause epilepsy, for instance. On CT, it's harder to see. You can see them. 
um, but it can blend in with the other environment that is around. But what on MRI, it, it's much more easy. You can you can truly see a protrusion of the meninges going out through the inner table of the calvarial vault, and then some brain going along with it. And importantly, the signal in that brain can be normal or abnormal. And if we see abnormal signal in that brain it, in someone with epilepsy, that would be um, much more concerning that, that that is the epileptogenic focus. I should mention, though, that these can just be little normal variants, too. So we did one study here at Mayo Clinic something like three years ago or so. We were looking uh, not at the temporal bone necessarily, but just at the middle cranial fossa, the floor of it. And we found that pitting is very common. And we actually did see some just incidental encephaloceles, much rarer than the pits. But you can see them in asymptomatic patients. I think uh, that brings up a couple of really valuable uh, clinical points. The first is that microdehiscence or even macrodehiscence in the skull base is ubiquitous. And I bet all of us on this podcast have one or two. Um, they're they're very, very common. So just having an area of not completely covered bone in the mastoid, uh, in the epitympanum in particular, or the antrum is pretty common. And even in, in the sinonasal cavity, having a very small dehiscence is not overly um, rare. And it's not something you... N- usually will consider even fixing. If you're doing a ear case and you're in there and you see it, it's probably beneficial to just uh, reinforce that area with some bone pate or some something else just to reduce the risk of a later life encephalocele if they acquire elevated pressure or something like that. But there, microdehiscence in of itself uh, is not usually an indication to repair it. There are some people, so another thing that, to point out is that to have a CSF leak, you don't just have to have herniating meninges uh, and a defect through it, it has to be going into pneumatized bone. So if it's if it's going into f- solid bone and it's a little pit, that doesn't need to be fixed because it's not going anywhere. So it needs to actually be going into a pneumatized cavity in general. I, I'm sure there's epileptic foci and other things that might have a different uh, uh, clinical relevance. But just from a standpoint of CSF and meningitis risk, if it's going into solid bone, it's not going anywhere. Those generally aren't things that are, that are commonly addressed. Um, the last thing is that some people can just have very low global, a globally low tegmin. And, and it almost looks like, you know, the, the ossicular chain is like touching the, the middle fossa again, uh, like the dura again, if it's not herniating and there's no evidence of a leak, it's very rare that there'll be a clinical indication to go in there and surgically fix that. So just again, uh, getting back to the idea that you treat the whole patient, you pay, t- treat the patient on the whole, look at their whole clinical scenario, and you don't treat asymptomatic things in general. Um, there are exceptions to that, uh, but in general, a lot of these things, uh, you don't necessarily, uh, microdehiscence you wouldn't fix. Encephaloceles are a little bit different. Some people actually won't fix a dry encephaloceal, a dry encephaloceal meaning it's not actually leaking CSF, and other people will recommend it. It probably depends on a lot of different factors. There's this idea that there's a uh, uh, you know, uh, additive, uh, accumulating risk the longer you observe a CSF leak. Um, that by itself is a whole interesting discussion because, um, you know, we right now it used to be that spontaneous CSF leaks were rare and the most common cause was a traumatic or iatrogenic CSF leak. And those still occur, but at least in our population in the Midwest, uh, we I would say the most common CSF leak we see is a spontaneous CSF leak we call a so-called idiopathic, and it's usually related to central obesity with decreased venous return from increased intrathoracic pressure and abdominal girth, uh, where they um, have elevated pressure and it's this constant pushing, and they they sprout multiple encephaloceles, have elevated cr- pressure, and have some of that stigmata. 
Um, but what's interesting is they'll commonly say that they've had this symptom for 10 years, 20 years. And then we say, we see them in clinic and we say, oh, this is an emergency. We need to take you, you know, right away uh, in the next week or two or a month to fix this because you're at risk for meningitis. And they, their common insightful response is, well, I've had this for 30 years. Why do I have to have it fixed now? We don't, we don't know enough about all this. Uh, it might actually be a, a physiological shunt for those patients because they're getting rid of excess flow and it's a unidirectional flow and their risk for meningitis might be very low. Um, uh, to be clear, I'm not recommending that, but I just want to say that we don't know a lot about this, despite the number of publications that are out there. And it'll be very interesting to see how this changes in 10 years or so. All right. Last question that um, I had regarding the CT imaging was just related to screening for retrochochlear pathology. Obviously, you know, the Academy um, published the guideline that's not the recommended um uh, imaging modality to screen for asymmetrical sensing or hearing loss, but not all patients can get MRI. Um, what are the limitations of using CT to evaluate a retrochochlear lesion, like a vestibular schwannoma? Well, the major limitation is that you're unable to assess the appearance or even the presence of the cranial nerves. So keep in mind with CT, essentially, mostly what you're doing with temporal bone imaging is looking at the bone. And so you can you can see the otic capsule, but you can't look at the fluid in the otic ca capsule. And you can see the internal auditory canal, but you can't actually see the nerves transversing through it. Now, you can see secondary signs. So if you get hypoplasia of one or more nerves going through that internal auditory canal, it might be hypoplastic. It might be asymmetrically narrowed compared to the other side. Um, and similarly, the cochlear aperture might be narrowed or even absent if, for instance, the cochlear nerve is absent. So you can use that as kind of a screening to figure out what's going on. And oftentimes, if I'm getting an MRI and I see absence of the nerve, my reflex is just to look at the CT, and nearly always you're going to see some sort of abnormalities in that area. You also can see other congenital abnormalities just of the osseous structures, too, obviously. You can see abnormalities of the otic capsule itself. You can see enlarged vestibular aqueduct, etc., and then the last thing I'd add is that CT can be used to look at some soft tissues. You know, if you have a large vestibular schwannoma, you can pick that up on CT. It's just that it's not going to be nearly as sensitive as MRI for looking at that type of thing. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps up all the questions that I had for today. Was there anything, um, Dr. Carlson or Dr. Benson, that um, we didn't touch on that you think would be valuable um, to bring up before we close up? Um, from my perspective, I think uh, that one of the, one of the one of the things that have been most valuable to my career and career development and patient care is the development of teams uh, and working together. Um, you know, I, uh, there's several neuroradiologists um, that I that I uh, uh, page back and forth or call on a on a very regular basis, uh, meaning daily. I, I learn a lot from them about different sequences and about different scan protocols. And I hope and I think that maybe they also. Uh, understand a little bit more like what we're trying to get out of a scan and what and what might be potentially beneficial for us because they're moving technology and they're working with these companies to improve innovation and imaging too. Um, it also really benefits um, research and innovation and clinical care. Um, there's several, there, there's multiple examples uh, of situations where I've that we've worked together and developed pathway uh, uh, care pathway efficiencies and things like that. For example, scanning protocols for CI and um, having the MRI technologists help facilitate that. Um, so um, if you're able to develop a good relationship with your neuroradiologist, contact them regularly, learn from them. And also uh, I think that the, the learning is, uh, is bi-directional. Boy, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And the other, the other thing that I would add is, 
uh, it's just a it's a fascinating field because it just continues to evolve every single year. And I remember when I was an early resident, I was told by someone that the CTs we had are essentially all we're ever going to see because that technology had kind of maxed out. And here we are this year starting to publish on photon counting CT. So it's it's exciting. It's fun. We get to see new things every day. And I'm sure if we did this exact same podcast a year from now, I would have quite a few different things to say about all these answers. Well, awesome. Uh, Dr. Benson, Dr. Carlson, thanks so much for your time. I think we got to cover a bunch of really high yield stuff. Um, just for the sake of time, that I'll, we won't do a summary or question portion on this um, episode. So that'll wrap things up. All right. Thanks for having us, John. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>